to a cause Good news to you I'll tell Of how the good old union Is coming here to dwell Tell me which side are you on Which side are you on Which side are you on Good evening, everybody. My name is Jess Barnard. I'm a member of Labour's National Executive Committee, and I'd like to welcome you to the latest in the series of socialist policy seminars put on by the Socialist Campaign Group to look at the solutions we need to the crises hitting our communities. Um, Over the last 18 months, there have been sessions on tax justice, on a Green New Deal, on the education system we need, on an alternative economic strategy, on progressive solutions to the energy crisis, on learning from the progressive agenda of the Welsh Labour government and on the right to food. These have had tens of thousands of views because as well as streaming live, we send these sessions out to thousands of people afterwards. So do look out for that and make sure you share with everyone you know. Tonight, we're going to be looking at how we save the NHS. And this month, we're marking the NHS's 75th birthday. It's a moment to celebrate the greatest institution our country has built, and the best example we have of socialist principles in action. But we mark this anniversary with the NHS facing its greatest crisis in decades, if not ever. A decade of Tory cuts and privatisation and marketization have driven this crisis. And we have the fight of our lives to save the NHS. There are many who want to use this crisis to put the final nail in the coffin of the NHS by claiming its model is broken, that free healthcare is unaffordable, and that we need to bring the private sector in to rescue it, as Tony Blair called for just yesterday. Tonight, we're going to look at why and how we keep our NHS public, a service run for people and not for profit. We've got a great panel of experts, of campaigners and of NHS staff joining us tonight. We'll also be taking questions from you. Um, Kate Osborne MP is really, really hoping to join us tonight. But there are a number of important votes, I believe 11 votes taking place tonight in Parliament. So she's hoping to jump in between, but it's going to be very, very tight depending on timing. So um, just, just wanted to let you know she was really hoping to join us um, and hopefully she will get time to tonight at some point throughout the discussion. So we're going to hear from um, each of our speakers and then we will have a, a Q&A. So please do pop your questions through throughout in the Q&A function. Uh, you can start popping those in right now or you can wait as as speakers are talking to pop in any questions that you have but without further ado we're going to kick off with our very first speaker and we have Tony O'Sullivan from Keep Our NHS Public. Over to you Tony. Thank you very much and thanks for the invitation. Um, So I was asked to speak about why keeping our NHS public must be at the core of solving the crisis in our NHS that the Tories have created and I was going to start with the um, social determinants of health, which are at the heart of injustice and inequity. And the WHO lists these. So I'm just going to go through them. Education, early child development, income and social protection, unemployment and job insecurity, food insecurity, housing, power, basic amenities, the environment, social inclusion, and non-discrimination, and structural conflict, war, displacement, and refugees. And finally, access to affordable health services of decent quality. Now, 
it's very obvious listing those that every single one of those have been seriously undermined over the last 13 years of austerity. But the last of these, affordable health services of decent quality, for me is the last line of defence, the lifeline for low-paid, unemployed, single parents, the poorest, the most disadvantaged of our society. The dual decisions to try to break the NHS model of universal access, free at the point of use, have been twofold to defund NHS and indeed social care to the level of, at the moment, if we were funded to a comparable level of France and Germany, we would be having 40 to 70 billion pounds every year over the last 10 years. And that is why the NHS is in such a parlous state. And secondly, to introduce the private sector in that defunded, weakened state that the NHS is in. Now, they've already done that for social care. 83% of social care provision for adults is in private hands. This compares to something like 25% for the NHS. Now, for me, that's two things. One is we're in danger, we're in the fight of our lives, as Jess has said. And the other is that we have not lost the NHS yet, and there's something really, really important to fight for. But the resulting damage of the last 13 years is something that's absolute tragedy and shameful and blood on the hands of the Tories. 335,000 excess deaths uh, between 2012 and 2019 caused by austerity and before we were hit by COVID. Amongst the worst COVID level of deaths is the UK, despite being one of the richest nations in the world. So the level of deaths, 337 deaths per 100,000 of the population, compared with 260 in France, 209 in Germany, 180 in Ireland, and in New Zealand, 59. And with the extreme pressures on staff, on social care, the vacancies in health and in care, 500 people per week are now losing their lives avoidably from delays in the acute health system. And there's an international comparison by, by the OECD of avoidable deaths in countries across the world. And we are on a par with the USA uh, amongst the worst of 88 deaths per 100,000 people that are avoidable each year. And that's the equivalent of a 1,000 per week of avoidable deaths. And part of that picture is the fact that waiting lists have now hit 7.5 million people in England alone and over 9 million in the four countries of the United Kingdom. Now, investing in the NHS, and investing in social care, and investing in education actually makes sense if you, if, even for, even for a capitalist looking for a, a successful economy. There's the effect called the fiscal multiplier, and investment in health repays the economy with a healthy population and a healthy economy at three to fourfold. Social care, double twofold and education of course really critical eight to ninefold there's a clear value in having a healthy educated and cared for economy that gives you health well-being and a strong foundation 
I've just been part with Keeper Anxious Public, being part of the development of a report called the Rational Policymakers Guide to the NHS. And it's basically saying, it's it's authored by 99%, and the author is Professor Mark Thomas. It's basically saying that the model, when funded, is the most democratically accessible, the most efficient, and in fact, the most cost-effective too. And if you were rational, you would invest in, in the NHS, and any other model is going to cost more. And 70% of Tory voters blame the Tory government for the state of the NHS. The vast majority of the population want to retain the social solidarity model of directly publicly funded NHS healthcare. And most of the population, although fewer, most of them want public provision. Some don't seem to mind yet whether it's provided by the pub, by the private sector or the public sector. But something then on the on the role of the private sector, why those people are actually misguided. Now, Tony Blair's commitment was to private sector competition versus the NHS and on the grounds of in- increasing patient choice. And he introduced, and, and he was praising this, uh, self-praising himself yesterday uh, in that interview with Sky News, independent sector treatment centres. He promoted those and Patricia Hewitt as a Secretary of State, and they were explicitly to challenge, through the challenge of competition, those centres would stimulate reform and improve efficiency in the NHS. And that word reform sends shivers down my spine, and I don't want to hear that as the top-level message from the Shadow Health team. NHS staff were actually seconded from the NHS to the independent sector treatment centres in order to make them function. 25% of the capacity of those centres, those private centres, was mandated by the government to be transferred NHS waiting lists to those centres, even though the NHS could have managed those patients. That experiment was not the solving of the waiting list crisis. It was costly, it was ineffective, but it left companies like Ramsey, Care UK and Spire with a £350 million subsidised foothold in the NHS. In fact, The government at that time also funded the NHS very well, and it was successfully a a brilliant health service for the whole population. So patients, by and large, did not want to make that choice. They wanted the NHS. They wanted it close to their homes. Now they're being forced to make that choice. Now we've got a two-tier system developing after 13 years of this government. Can I just make one thing clear, and it's a message to to the shadow health team. There is no spare capacity in the private sector that does not damage the NHS. What the, co- what the private sector does, it's more costly, it's profit-driven rather than patient-centered. It is conflict of interests, conflict of motivation, cherry-picking. It's weighting the intensity of work onto the NHS by taking all the relatively easy patients and leaving the most complex and vulnerable patients to the NHS. There's a track record of failures. We can go into that more later. It develops low wages with hundreds of thousands of people outsourced to those companies with bad terms and conditions disgracefully. It takes staff from the NHS to staff the private sector, and it gives nothing back to the NHS or the universities for training. So to the shadow front bench team, my messages are amongst the following. 
please can you catch up with the population? We want a publicly funded, publicly provided, publicly accountable NHS. Commit to the NHS. Commit to returning universal health care. And that means ending migrant charges for the over a million people who are refused access to the health services of the hospital and mental health. And stop the racist health sur surcharge levies that are now being used uh, as dog whistles in funding of the public sector awards. Commit to insourcing back the excluded NHS workers. Commit to investing in its staff and paying them. Exchange the two or three billion pounds a year that go into private agencies staffing the vacancies in the NHS and pay the public sector staff themselves so that they'll stop the hemorrhaging of them out of the health service and commit to ending all clinical contracts going to the private sector and bring back other contracts as soon as possible at the expiry of those contracts. It's morally right, but it is also cheaper, it's safer, and it secures the, the future. And my last point is, please commit to ending the disgrace that is our social care system and put that also back into the public sector. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tony, for that incredible contribution. As you said, it's something that's really, really important that we fight for. And I think that message should be heard loud and clear by the front bench. And I'm sure everyone on the call tonight uh, stands with you completely. Um, moving on to our next speaker, we're joined by Andrew Mason, who is a junior doctor who has been on strike out on the front line, uh, here to talk to us about his experiences. Over to you, Andrew. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Tony, brilliant as always. Um, if you want to understand NHS policy, uh, listen to what Tony says. Um, brilliant guy, brilliant, brilliant campaigner. Uh, it's an honor to join you guys today. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me to speak um, on this uh, uh, incredible panel. Just to put a timestamp on this, today is the 17th of July, 2023, and for the last five days, we junior doctors in England have been on strike. And that represents the longest period of sustained industrial action in, NH in NHS history. And we are sending a clear message to Rishi Sunak and all of the conservatives in power that we will not stand by as they destroy our NHS for profit. This is a government that does not care about NHS staff or NHS patients. They don't care that we've lost nearly 32% of our pay in the last 15 years. They don't care that NHS staff suicides are at an all-time high. They don't care that 170,000 NHS staff uh, left their jobs last year, including 41,000 nurses and 4,000 doctors. They just don't care. And that's why I voted to strike, uh, because no matter how many alarms we raised over the last decade, no matter how many times we've seen patients come to harm because of unsafe staffing, no matter how many times we've seen patients die because of criminal grade gov governmental neglect, um, no matter how many memorial services, I attended another one this week for colleagues who have taken their own lives. These conservatives just don't listen to any experts and that needs to end right now. Over the last 13 years in power, the conservatives have overseen the greatest assault uh, in, on the NHS in 75 year history. And when labor handed over the keys uh, uh, of the NHS to the conservatives you know, 13 years ago, it was performing brilliantly. We still have a lot of work to do, but after a sustained period of underfunding, again, from the conservatives previously, Labour properly funded the NHS on par with their European counterparts, and the results were impressive. Because of Labour's investment in health, in our public health, 
10 years ago, the NHS was ranked the number one healthcare system on the planet. That's something I love to talk about because it's the absolute truth. And we cannot stop repeating this from now until the election because they inherited the number one healthcare system on the planet and they've run it into the ground completely. And, you know, 10 years ago, not a single country on earth was delivering higher quality care for a better price than what y'all were doing here in the UK. It really is an impressive achievement. And that is labor's legacy. And, and the party must not run away from that. That needs to be a critical element of the re-election campaign um, because you guys put the money into it that was needed in order to fund public health. And the results uh, uh, proved that you guys were the best in the world. So that's why it's a bit alarming to your talk from party leadership now about efficiency savings or reform, what Tony was just speaking about, um, or arguments about the NHS not needing any more money because these are all fantasies with no basis in reality. Um, NHS budgets are artificially swollen right now because they include all of the billions in stolen and squandered pandemic funds and thousands of NHS contracts are with these private providers, Tony just mentioned, who skim off you know, 20% in profit um, while the rest of the system collapses. And 10 years ago, you guys had the most efficient, efficient healthcare system on the planet. And we had plenty to improve, but it was running like a well-oiled machine, especially in comparison to other wealthier countries. And then what happened? The conservatives denied the NHS 40 billion pounds every single year for a decade. That's 400 billion pounds in investment over that time. And if you take the most efficient service in the world 10 years ago and you remove 400 billion pounds from it in funding, it will collapse. Um, of course it will. And they intentionally underfunded it. They intentionally undermined it, passed the health and care bills in 2012 and 2022. That, that faced near universal opposition from health experts. We all said that it was bad policy. It was going to harm patients. It's not going to improve um, our, 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 our um, performance in pandemics. It's terrible policy. And all of us spoke out about it. But this government refused to listen. Um, moreover, they, they failed to plan for the pandemic. Um, and because of that, they're responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths. And you look at where the NHS is right now. We have you know, an all-time record of 7.5 million people on the longest waiting list in NHS history. 500 patients are dying every single week in this country from preventable delays accessing NHS emergency care. And on the 75th anniversary of the NHS, it's barely holding on to life because of the sustained assault, the longest and most aggressive in the NHS 75 years. And so the challenge that we face right now, and one that I'm personally obsessed with, is how we legislatively protect the NHS from assaults like this in the future, because we must never again allow these con artists to destroy the best thing about this country. And so if I were health secretary, a dream job, how would we start, start fresh to protect the NHS? Well, first, we need to end the staff hemorrhage immediately. All public sector workers deserve a massive pay increase. And NHS staff, you know, across the board, a 25% pay increase with future increases to, to match inflation, to ensure that pay never drops to this extent. Second, we need to reverse a, a, a decade of assault on our public services and must massively reinvest in our public health. That will be expensive. And under no circumstances should this come from existing NHS budgets. This, uh, this, 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 this pay offer that Rishi Sunak just announced uh, is to come from existing budgets you know, for, for many governmental departments. And, in turn, and for NHS staff, that pay rise is going to come out of increasing the immigration health surcharge which as an immigrant, that means that I will be effectively, uh, I will lose any pay increase to those, those immigration health surcharges, which is just, which is absurd, which is a terrible way to fund health service, terrible way to fund this pay rise. And, you know, for a government that does not want to invest in, in, in 
in, uh, in doctors and nurses that are developed over time from, you know, from, from universities in the United Kingdom, and they rather get foreign labor to come in and, and, uh, and, and help. You know, it's just, it's, it's shocking that, you know, in France, the, the, after the pandemic, this, you know, the, the government offered French citizenship to, uh, to pandemic key workers, while here we're now being faced with, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, pay cuts and a, uh, and a tax increase from this, um, from this, this, this terrible pay deal. So it's a terrible way to, to, uh, to, to, to find this money. And, you know, the third thing that we need to do is we need, a, we need an evidence-based government. We need a government that fiercely protects and defends health policy best practices uh, to produce the best outcome, not for shareholders, but for patient health. And as Tony was just saying, this, this, this fiscal multiplier, we know that every pound that's invested in the NHS, we get four back in economic growth. This is a no-brainer. Um, but will it, will it be expensive? Absolutely. Will we need to make up for 400 billion pounds that have been stolen from, from budgets, from, from, from patients over the last decade? We absolutely will. But the answer is not to, um, not to, to, to take it from existing budgets or charge immigrants more than their health charge. The charge is that the, the, the answer is, is simple. We need to tax the super rich. We just survived the greatest crisis in this country has faced since World War II, and we need to rebuild this country together, and all of us need to chip in. And those with the deepest pockets need to dig deeper as a patriotic gesture to help this country recover. A 2% COVID recovery patriotic wealth tax on income over 10 million pounds would be a great way to start. And people like Rishi Sunak, the wealthiest prime minister in history, and even, I'll say it, the billionaires of the royal family too, all have more than enough wealth to help this country in its time of need. And if they are true patriots and if they care about the, the lives of, of their subjects, then this is something that they will do. They will not be, they, they, they will not be uh, uh, put out on the street because of it. They will not be forced from their homes. They will still be obscenely wealthy, um, but they will, they will be standing side by side their subjects during this greatest crisis that we faced in, you know, in generations. And so this is an absolute necessity because what this comes down to is that after all we've been through in the last 10 years, after the pain of COVID, are we rebuilding our society and our economy for billionaires? Or do we want good public services for everyone? Do we want do rich folks want to wait hours for an ambulance when their loved one is having a heart attack so they die en route to hospital? Or do they want their loved one to survive? Do they want a safe transportation system? Do they want good schools? Do they want Britain to be competitive in the 21st century or not? If they do, as all of us should demand, we need to demand a new social contract that ensures success and prosperity for all, not just for billionaires. And to save, to save the NHS and all of our public services, we need a wealth tax now. And that is the simplest, best way to do this. That is the only way in my mind that we are going to, you know, to recover the NHS. And you know, after this, 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 the worst assault that we've seen in 75 years. And so that's what we have to fight for. Um, and you know, again, thank you for all of your support on the picket line for all of us uh, NHS workers out on strike. Uh, and uh, thank you for having me speak today in solidarity with everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Uh, solidarity with all the striking workers. Um, if anyone is on the call and can get out to support striking workers on the picket lines, absolutely get out there and, and support striking workers because uh, it's so important that workers on the front line are taking these actions uh, to, to protect not only their jobs, uh, terms and conditions and pay, but also a service that means so much to all of us. Um, I'm going to move on to our next speaker now. Um, but before I do, uh, just a reminder for anyone who's joined the call, we're going to be taking some questions at the end uh, for our speakers. So if you could pop any questions you have in the Q&A box, that would be absolutely brilliant. 
Uh, our next speaker is Charlie Ann, who's joining us to talk about her experiences from the Campaign for Real Care. Over to you, Charlie. Thanks, Jess, um, and thanks for having me on to speak. Um, yeah, I'm Charlie and I'm from the Campaign for Real Care. And I'm uh, here to talk about the impact of social care on, NA on the NHS. The need to save the NHS is inextricably linked with the crisis in social care. A deep cultural divide in the way they function causes an unspoken toxicity that risks them both. According to a 2021 LGA report, the people most at risk of a preventable admission to hospital are those who experience ill health or a social crisis that could be managed at or close to home if the right support, care, safeguards and treatments are available at the right time. Older and disabled people and those in mental health crisis are at the sharp end. By limiting timely access to the right care and support identified by those who need it, overall health and wellbeing outcomes are poor. There have been countless failed policy initiatives over the past 30 years to try and make health and social care work together, like joint financing and most recently so-called integrated care structures, but nothing has worked. The NHS is beloved and a highly praised model across the globe. So the urgency to preserve and nurture it runs deeply in the public consciousness in spite of the right-wing press. The opposite is the case in social care. Public perception is negative and suspicious. A 2022 article by Frontline said, independent research reveals that over half of people say social workers have a bad reputation. And of those, nearly a third would be reluctant for their help despite needing support. This massive difference in public perception identifies an important roadblock to solving the crisis in both. The NHS was founded on the principle that first health professionals identify need, unhindered, as Nye Bevan said, by budgets. And second, politicians set the budgets to meet that need. Waiting lists provide the measure of the gap against which we can gauge how well politicians are doing. That's why we have this campaign now. We know how badly the Tories are doing. It's the opposite in social care. Politicians set budgets, and then social care professionals make need fit those budgets. This means there's never any unmet need recorded for politicians to address. Social workers become the culprits to blame for the resulting insufficient and inappropriate social care provision, while politicians escape scrutiny. Directors perpetuate a glossy brochure facade they're amongst the highest paid in the sector. It's in their interest to protect the status quo. Despite the Care Act introduced in 2014, making these practices unlawful, they continue to this day, hidden by government and councils across the country. Our report, Unveiling the Truth, can be downloaded from our website. Hopefully the link will be shared in the, in the chat. And this reveals how and why this is happening. It's one of the biggest scandals of our time. Of course, as I, as I said at the start, this has an enormous effect on the holistic picture of looking after health and well-being together and in turn improving outcomes. If the two parts of a machine are working in opposite ways, how can they possibly work effectively together? The answer is they can't 
and they aren't. Our campaign for real care has introduced a charter for the right to well-being as the basis for a radically changed future for social care, centering those who call on care and support. It's based on social care joining the NHS in its founding principle that need must precede resource. Charter supporters believe the charter built into a new constitution for social care would create the environment for health and care to become aligned as authentic partners. Liberated social workers would be freed up to work in meaningful partnership with health professionals to identify true need and act accordingly. Research though shows that when that happens, better outcomes happen, making better use of resources. And just as waiting times are a measure of how politicians are doing in health, so unmet need would become the measure in social care. Putting need before resource in social care will also create the context for a radical change in the public perception of social care, with a focus on delivering well-being and independent living according to the UN, rather than the current crisis management. We believe this will strengthen the NHS instead of placing a strain on it and contribute to securing its future alongside a national service delivering well-being. Since we presented our charter to the Socialist Campaign Group earlier this year, we've been working to create a broad base of support. It will be needed. Resistance will be immense. The current system serves powerful, professional and political interests, let alone those in the private sector, as Tony's been talking about earlier. Our continued mutual support will be important to save the NHS and social care from those who refuse to address the deep and toxic cultural and economic issues that have led us all to this meeting today. Solidarity. Thank you so much, Charlie, for that powerful message and for taking the time to speak to us today. Um, I'm going to take us on to our next speaker. There is a chance that Kate Osborne MP will still be joining us. Um, there's a couple of votes going on right now, but I know she is still hoping to hop onto the call. So I'm going to go to our next speaker and hopefully Kate will be able to join us afterwards. Um, so our next speaker is Mark Ladbrook, who's joining us to talk to us today about the Socialist Health Association and the incredible work that they're doing. Over to you, Mark. Thank you very much. And, and let me say a few words about the Socialist Health Association, particularly for some of the younger activists on the uh, on the call today. Um, it, it's a uh, Socialist Health Association is actually an affiliate of the Labour Party, more or less like a, a trade union is part of the socialist uh, societies uh, group in the Labour Party. It can uh, send motions to local CLPs. It can send motions to Labour conference. Can send delegates uh, both ways. It can uh, it can endorse MPs. It can contribute to sending a member to the NEC. So it is integrated into the Labour Party uh, from that point of view. Um, and it's uh, it it we intend to use every lever that we have to push and to fight to defend the health service and and, and also as people have pointed out the the social care which is in a, a catastrophic uh, condition and which actually is a picture of what the NHS could be if the current uh, uh, pattern uh, disastrous attacks uh, continue so our idea of making a change in society is uh, to work politically, as, as, as I've indicated. It's also to work as part of mass campaigns. So we work as part of umbrella groups with Keep Our NHS Public, with uh, with NHS workers, 
um, because we want to build the broadest possible campaign in the streets and in the lobbying of, of uh, uh, political figures. And, you know, there's a, there's a certain irony, there's a certain question that we need to ask ourselves. And I, I, I used to be the uh, convener uh, at, uh, at uh, the John Radcliffe Hospital in, in Oxford, and that is to say the senior, the senior steward there. And one of the things that always surprised me was that if you look at the whole of the NHS workforce of, was it 1.2 million people? Um, it depends how you count it, how you count it, whether full-time staff or, or part-timers. But there really is, it is a huge group of workers. It is actually one of the biggest bargaining units in, well, in Europe, certainly, but one of the biggest in, in the world uh, in terms of groups of people. And one of the things that always struck me was even if uh, we got 50% um, of them, to come and to march and to defend the NHS, we would have over half a million people on the streets. If we got their family members uh, involved, then we would have far more. If we got users of the NHS involved, well, my God, we would have tens of millions of people marching on the street to defend uh, the health service. And so the, the interesting question is, why are we not able to mobilize at this scale to defend the health service? I remember going and speaking to a group of staff in one of the community hospitals in, in Oxford, and I was addressing a group of nurses, and they, they'd been on a very long shift, and they were really exhausted, and they were tired, and there was this fellow from the union going on to them about the problems in the NHS and privatization and marketization, and they all wanted to have a break and they were really fed up and fidgety at me going on to them. I was probably not a completely good speaker at the time either. But after a while, a South African, a black South African nurse got up and said, for God's sake, stop fidgeting and listen to this fellow. You don't realize how important the NHS is. You Brits think the NHS is like tap water. You assume you can turn on a tap and you will get the NHS whenever you need it. You have got to stop taking it for granted. You have got to get a grip and understand that you have to fight to defend this system. And, you know, it sometimes takes overseas workers, and, and Andrew is another example here of an overseas worker who does not take the NHS for granted. And I remember too speaking to an Indian uh, uh, worker, and she went into the NHS and she said, you know, when I first went into an NHS hospital, I started crying. So I said, well, why, why was that? And she said, I couldn't believe that a hospital like this was for ordinary people. She said, in India, a hospital like this would be for the most privileged section of the population. They would be for the people who were so rich and the rest of us would have rough little shacks with uh, uh, at, at the most uh, one doctor amongst huge numbers of the population to try to, to, to support us. And she said, this is so moving to see the NHS in, in action. I, I really, she said, I, I, I couldn't stop crying as an ordinary person going into such a hospital. 
So one of the big problems we have is actually persuading people that the NHS isn't, isn't there for good. And actually, it's ironic that the South African nurse who told us that the NHS was like tap water for Brits maybe hit the nail on the head because tap water even can't be taken for granted anymore in Britain. It is just such a scandalous situation with everything, every part of this capitalist system falling apart around us. You know, that we can't, you know, with even a question now, if you turn the tap, whether or not the company will have gone bust uh, because of the rapacious capitalism extracting vast amounts, not giving a thought for tomorrow, uh, but maximizing profits today. So, so that is the issue that we have to discuss with people. We have to engage with people. We have to, we have to persuade them that we can make a difference uh, rather than saying, well, it is inevitable, uh, this process uh, that's going on. So that's why it's important that we fight. We fight inside the Labour Party. And sometimes people say to us, well, look, you've got a resolution passed and the leadership may well ignore it. Well, yes, that's true. But every time we take an action, be it a demonstration, be it passing a resolution, a motion in conference in your CLP, raising questions, challenging, there's a manifesto process going on at the moment. You'll know that next weekend there's a big meeting of the National Policy Forum to discuss Labour's manifesto. Every inch of pressure that we can put on, we must put that pressure on. Because we may not win by one individual action, but what we will be doing is, is creating a cumulative effect, cumulative pressure, because we know that in the next 18 months, there's going to be a general election. And God help us if we don't get a Labour government in as a result of that general election. But we also all know that this Labour government that's going to come in is not going to be a socialist-minded Labour government. It is going to be one of the most cautious Labour governments that we have ever seen. It's going to make, if you look at the discussion about budgets, it might even make the Blair government look uh, look more radical compared with some of the proposals that are coming through at the moment. And we have to recognise that we have to fight for a Labour government, but understand that putting a cross on the ballot paper isn't at the end of the story. We have to put the cross on the ballot paper and we have to keep fighting. We have to keep organizing. We have to keep campaigning. We have to keep demonstrating. We have to build the sort of alliances that we see here today in this, in, in this meeting. So that, in a sense, is our message that we have to fight inside the party. We have to fight outside the party. We have to build every alliance. We have to build alliances with the trade union movement. It is an utter scandal that uh, the front bench have been told not to appear on picket lines and to stand shoulder to shoulder with workers fighting for their rights, be they in the NHS or any other area. So please get out on those picket lines. Do not allow yourselves to be intimidated by these extraordinary statements from a party, which is allegedly the party of the labour movement. We have to stand up and we have to fight and we have to push back. So obviously, the, the message that I'm giving you at the moment is a message which is controversial inside the Labour Party, to say, to say the least. And there are considerable struggles inside the party, which you will all be aware of. And those struggles also take place inside the Socialist Health Association. 
we have a very significant membership of MPs, right-wing Labour MPs and their staff who join the SHA to try to muzzle us, to make us nice and quiet and compliant. So I do urge you, if you're involved with the Labour Party or in the Labour movement, do think about joining the SHA because we want to make sure that the, that the SHA continues to be mouthy and stick to its socialist principles. Um, there's a couple more points I'd, I'd like to make, and one of them is 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 about the about the the whole issue of of if you want some of the structural problems that are now existing inside the NHS. So I very much agree with all the points that have been made up till now. Um, but if you remember, um, in our introduction, we talked about the process of privatization and marketization. Now, I guess most people understand what, what we mean by privatization. They see ambulances, for instance, going past, which are no longer NHS ambulances, but are, are from, from private companies that are providing that ambulance service on, on, on some, quite often some beat up old, uh, old ambulance that they're using. Uh, so that's what privatization is. We can see it when we go into hospitals, we see the cleaning services are privatized and outsourced. And you can see when you go to an optician or, or get a hearing test, you can see that the process of privatization has gone ahead. But there's also a process of marketization. And what marketization means is that you set up NHS structures, which nowadays are increasingly captured by corporate interests, in integrated care boards, for instance. Are, 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 are the, the private companies have got considerable say in those. And those organizations funnel vast amounts of NHS money into private corporations. The NHS is being corrupted through its commissioning process. And that corruption exists at the level of, um, of, of, of ideological, persuading people that this is the only way you can deliver services. But it also exists at the level of, of actually physical people are coming in from the private sector who are involved in this commissioning process. So that process has to be rolled back to reassert the NHS as a, an organization which puts the interests of people first, which is actually a public organization which is controlled by the public, which is why when Labour says, oh, we don't want to see any more reform, reforms of the NHS, any more structural reforms, the reason they don't want to see structural reforms is it is already being controlled increasingly by well, capitalist interests. So we have to reverse that process. We do have to tackle the problem of structural reforms, as well as uh, fighting for, for, for the rights of, of, of workers and, and, and defending the service against privatization. So, so please bear with us when we put that argument uh, and we get a response that, oh, no, no, you're just trying to do a reorganization. It's, it's not just any reorganization. It's really an extremely important uh, reversal of, the, of, of this corporate control. So thank you very much for, for putting up with me. Um, and I'd just like to say that in terms of... Uh, you know, we, I've said that we are a, a, um, a socialist organization. We strongly believe in our socialist values. We actually sent a medical team out during the Spanish Civil War and helped the Republican uh, soldiers, volunteers fighting against Franco. 
And it used to be said at that time that actually the, the help provided by the Socialist Health Association doctors actually meant they got better better medical care in the trenches in Spain than they got back home, uh, which is entirely, uh, you know, uh, ironic, of course. But but we, we, we are committed to our socialist traditions and we will argue our position right the way along the line. And we are so delighted to work with such allies tonight. So thank you all very much. Thank you so much, Mark. And there's so many practical ways socialists inside and outside Labour can take meaningful action uh, to defend the NHS. So really appreciate you taking the time to explain that. And as you can see in the chat, uh, there's a link to the Socialist Health Association in there if uh, people listening would like to get more involved and find out more information. Um, our next speaker is unfortunately not going to be able to join us. Um, Holly Turner from NHS Workers Say No. She, unfortunately, she's having some IT issues um, and hasn't been able to make it on. But what we will do is publish her speech tomorrow because um, I'm sure she has some really important things to say that we would love to hear. So um, do keep an eye out for that tomorrow. Um, before we hear from Kate, who is going to join us, um, we're going to go to some questions from the Q&A. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to go to Tony for the first question. Um, Stephen has said that we need to have more of a focus on the collapse in NHS dental care. Um, do you think that there are any lessons from what has happened to dental care for the rest of the NHS? Thank you very much. That, that's a, a really good question. And we are, uh, well, we're very interested in the SHA's manifesto for the, for, for the next election. But Keep Our NHS Public is also developing a, a sort of a set of a platform for the vision of rebuilding the NHS. And, and one of the really key points is building back NHS dentistry. Now, um, I think it's been part of the, um, well, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it, but to, to, to be honest, it virtually is that there's been a deliberate rundown of the NHS and there's a, a deliberate rundown of the workforce. And that has taken dentistry uh, towards the private sector ahead of the rest of the NHS. Now, when the NHS was founded, there was free dental care, there was free eye care, free prescriptions. And I, I read somewhere today that those things have always been privatised. No, they haven't always been privatised. Uh, that was part of the vision of the original NHS. And I think it's a disgrace that 50% of children now cannot find an NHS dentist. 30% uh, of adults cannot find an NHS dentist. And that's getting worse. And um, the the... The uh, British Dental Association said the other day that they needed, I think it was 2,200 dentists to be trained every year. And actually, they've only been training 1,400. So every single year, this crisis is going to get worse now um, until there's a, a drastic revisioning of the NHS for medical and dental care and for social care itself. Uh, I, I think uh, the NHS the state of NHS dentistry is a really good example of where things will go. And you have to pay dental charges unless you are already penniless. And um, so even if even if you've got an NHS dentist, you are likely to have to pay. The, the tragedy now is that a huge number of dental practices are no longer taking NHS patients because they just, they just claim that they can't 
make the living out of it that makes it worthwhile makes it worthwhile so it was a very good question and it's right up there uh, alongside mental health and other issues that need to be thoroughly addressed by this uh, by the future opposition coming into government whoever they are and in whatever form whether it's a, a labor majority or uh, or an, an alliance of parties they have to say the there has to be investment in our public services on a par to after the second world war thank you tony absolutely clear we need this investment now more than ever I'm going to go on to our next question. I know we've got quite a few questions coming in still, and we uh, do have limited time, so I'll try and get as many in as I can. But we might not be able to come to everybody, so just let you know we'll do our very best to get through what we can. Um, so this one's for Andrew. Um, we've had a number of questions from Anne and some others on the call who have referred to a general strike. Um, so I just wondered if you had any thoughts or reflections on a general strike, and could you tell us a little bit more about how you're coordinating between staff in different sections of the NHS in terms of taking industrial action um, and how you can how you work together to to win for workers? Hi, um, uh, good questions. Um, as for a general strike, um, I think that the uh, if you just look at, I think that what we're seeing now over the last couple of years is probably as close to a general strike as we will see in this country. Um, you guys aren't, I'm an outsider here, but what I've noticed that you guys are are a little bit more reluctant to strike than certainly the French are, um, uh, and uh, and I think that what we're seeing right now, which is a massive amount of people on strike over the last couple of years, uh, I think this is the closest that we'll probably get to a general strike, provided that the situation doesn't continue to get worse, and, and that's that's that that certainly may happen, um, but um, that will just take a a you know. If people can't pay their mortgages, if people are forced out of their homes, if more people can't um, can't afford to feed themselves or heat their homes this winter, then yeah, at some point you will see you know increasing numbers of people wanting to go on strike, wanting to go out into the streets to demonstrate to this government that you know that that oversees the sixth wealthiest country on the planet. Um, they we have immense wealth in this country, uh, but you know we are at the same time denying basic needs to the population which is, you know, in my book, criminal grade negligence. And so if things continue to get worse, then, then who knows what will happen. Um, and in terms of, you know, uh, of, of NHS uh, staff, you know, working together, um, I, 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 I'm a rank and file member of the British Medical Association, fully supportive of my, of the, of the junior doctors um, that are leading the strike action and, uh, and uh, the overall um, leadership of the VMA. Um, and I hope that they are discussing, I hope that they're in communications with the other um, health unions as well, uh, because, you know, we have 1.5 million people in the NHS, some of the largest groups of people, largest groups of workers, you know, anywhere in the world, um, certainly the largest in this country. And we need to recognize our collective strength. And if we see our system collapsing around us because of years of underinvestment and under-resourcing, if we see a government that does not care about NHS staff or patients, um, and is content to allow, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to suffer on the, you know, on, on uh, the longest waiting list in NHS history or to be denied care on a routine basis every single day because of, you know, poor staffing levels, um, then then we have an obligation to fight back. And, you know, so I hope that all of the health unions are working together. And as the situation continues to get worse, worse which it inevitably will, because every single thing that a that a, a reasonable government would do in order to solve all of these crises, this government is not doing. And so, 
you know, fast forward six months from now and, you know, it's things are going to get worse and we'll see what the situation is. And I just I hope uh, that all of the heads of all of the health unions are, uh, are going to speak uh, together and recognize that we have enormous power when we work collectively. Thanks so much, Andrew. That was a brilliant, brilliant answer. And, you know, we hear a lot about, you know, what do we do when our politicians aren't listening to us? And I think the answer and that, that, that you know, phrase collective strength is is the answer we're looking for. You know, we have to make sure we use the power that we do have to make politicians listen. Um, the ones that don't listen. Um, but we do have one on the call now joining us who does listen. Um, so I'm really, really pleased to be introducing Kate Osborne MP, who has really, really kindly um, joined the call tonight, despite having a ton of really important votes today. So really, really pleased to welcome Kate Osborne MP. Thanks, Jess. Uh, and thanks for inviting me along. Uh, I'm so sorry that votes tonight have meant that my speech is obviously going to be much shorter than I would have liked. And I'm delayed in coming on at the end here, but I'm sure you all would have wanted me opposing the vile anti-immigration bill and the strike bill tonight. Uh, and apologies in advance if I suddenly have to make an exit uh, because this, the votes are still going on. So I'll try now to be brief, um, as I'm sure you've heard a lot from the fantastic speakers already. And let me say that it is a disgrace that we are still having to demand the basics and fight for the very survival of the NHS. Our NHS is being deliberately destroyed and this government is actively discussing with private healthcare companies ways to fix the problems that both they and these companies have caused. We've seen nurses take strike action for the first time in NHS history, ambulance workers and other NHS staff taking action, and today we see our BMA junior doctors take strike action. And let me just say solidarity to Dr. Andrew. Uh, it was great to uh, hear and see you there, Andrew. Uh, and to all those taking action, not just over their pain conditions, but of course for all of us, defending NHS services and safe staffing levels. And I've joined Andrew on multiple NHS picket lines and demos over the last year on the side of the workers as I always will be. Last week, we heard that big pharmaceutical companies are extracting billions in excess, in excess profits from the NHS, and it's still not enough for them. They're lobbying the government to increase the NHS medicines bill by a further 2.5 billion. And that 2.5 billion could pay for all NHS workers to have a pay rise in line with inflation, to fully restore the wages that they have lost year on year for the last 13 years, and it could end the current disputes. That would be a sensible move from any government to start addressing the issues impacting on recruitment and retention. But instead of that, we see headlines that millions will get a pay rise because the government has accepted the independent pay review body recommendations. Well, let me very, be very clear. The fact that the government moved at all is down to the excellent work of all the workers taking strike action and the power of the unions. But any claims these review bodies are independent is laughable. They do what the government tell them, and whilst this offer is an increase on previous offers, it's nowhere near pay restoration and is still a real terms pay cut. To make things worse, this increase in pay will not be fully funded, meaning that services will still be cut. 
Sunyak and Hunt confirmed any public sector pay rises will be paid for by cuts in services amounting to at least £2 billion. More services and jobs lost and the staff who remain unable to cope with the workload. And to, add, to further add insult to injury, so that part of the pay rise that is funded will be paid for by increasing fees by migrant workers. This disgusting racist policy is another strand of their incitement of hatred of others, BAME communities, LGBTQ plus people. I saw many describing this policy as borderline racist. Well, there is no borderline. It's racist and it's deliberately divisive. Deliberately divisive and unworkable, just like their illegal immigration bill and their anti-strike bill that I'm opposing tonight. Ministers know the impact that their language policies and guidance has on society. They brief that we will give a pay rise and charge migrants more. It's just another deliberate attempt to incite hatred as part of the government's war on woke. Their clear goal is to make the next generation a distraction culture war to cover up their disastrous 13 years of chaotic rule that has led to this cost of living crisis and rampant inflation. And we need to save our NHS and we need to save our communities. And to do that, we need some good old redistribution of wealth in this country. We need to stop the obscene amounts of profit and we need a wealth tax to invest in public services. That's what a transformative Labour government could do. So let's bring on a general election and let's keep fighting for investment and renationalisation of our NHS. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kate, for joining us. And what an incredible, incredible speech and a, a really strong reminder why it's so important that we have socialists advocating for these policies in Parliament and standing up for working class voices in the country. So thank you so much, Kate, for joining us. It's wonderful to hear from you. Um, I'm going to move back to a couple of questions now before we finish for the day. Um, so my next question is for um, Mark and um, Kate referenced this as well a little bit. Um, a number of people have called for a wealth tax. Um, and Mark, is that one of the ways that the Socialist Health Association is advocating we fund the much needed NHS investment? And are there other ways you want to talk about um, how we kind of push for that investment and how it might be funded? I certainly think that the question of a wealth tax is hugely important. And it, it, it is very worrying when you see uh, Labour front bench talking about uh, sticking with the austerity type tax tile budgets that uh, that they will inherit from the Tories extremely worrying um and you you think well uh, we have been saddled with colossal pfi debts uh from previous actually new labor administrations largely uh which signed up to pfi deals which by law uh, have to be paid off as first uh, requirement on the NHS budget. And these deals are fabulously expensive. Um, so we need to push back. We need to fight uh, to regain control of the NHS estate and, 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 uh, and the property of the NHS. And we also need to make sure that adequate funding for the NHS. But it's actually, it's worth saying that if we abolished the NHS market, we would actually free up very significant amounts of money uh, in the NHS for, for funding. 
And that's really something that needs to be done. We have to tackle this problem. Um, and and uh, Parliament in the past uh, set up a commission to look into that, to try to work out how much the market was costing. And they were unable to see the figures, but we know that they are colossal figures that, uh, of the cost of the NHS market. Uh, the idea that we paid for it by national insurance, which is the most regressive tax around, is appalling. So, yes, I agree. Let's let's push a wealth tax as strongly as we can. Thanks, Mark. Um, absolutely. We need to push for a wealth tax um, and you can support the campaign for a wealth tax um, through the social media links in the chat. Um, my last question is for Charlie. So, Charlie, we hear a lot about a national care service. Could you tell us a bit about like, what that would look like and why the Labour front bench should be making that a priority? Yeah, thanks. Great question. I think the, the fundamental importance of a national care service or whatever we, we choose to call it, there are calls for a national independent living service, a national wellbeing service, um, as I may, as I made the point in my in my speech, the fundamental importance of that is put placing need before resource. So it's about having people's needs as identified by those people, not identified by whatever the budget allows. Um, that that should be the most important um, founding principle of any national care service. And, you know, we, we've had a very kind of lacklustre um, talk about a national care, care service, the same platitudes that we hear year on year on year and nothing actually concrete um, in the way of, of offer. Um, so that's why really I'm here pushing the charter as, as a kind of basis for some kind of constitution for social care. Um, we, we very much support um, Naxil's um, campaign as well, but we believe that the thing that needs to come first and foremost is this need to identify need before resource and to use the CARE Act in the way it was intended, not the way it's being used at the moment, um, which is highly dishonest. And yeah, I, I think that's the best answer I can give. Thanks. Thanks, Charlie, for that brilliant, brilliant answer. Um, unfortunately, we have run out of time for questions. Um, so that was the last of the questions for tonight. Um, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of our speakers um, for, for joining us tonight, for taking the time out of your campaigning to speak to us about why this is so important. Um, so thank you so much again. Uh, to the organisers of the call, thank you for helping to organise this call. And of course, everyone who's tuned in to join us tonight. Um, if you missed any of the discussion or you'd like to share it with uh, anyone you know, friends, family, colleagues, housemates, whoever it might be, you can find the meeting online and share it with them there. Um, and please do stay tuned for more seminars from the SCG that will be coming up in the future. Um, and do, do make sure you hop onto those calls. Um, keep talking about the really important policies that we need to be pushing for um, ahead of the next Labour government. So please keep supporting the campaign to save the NHS. Check out all of the links that we've shared in the chat and I'll see you at the very next seminar. All right. Thank you so much, everybody, and have a good night.